Welcome to The Love Drive. It's a show about sex, love, and everything in between. If it has to do with your heart or your genitals, we're talking about it. It's raw, explicit, and playful. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Do you find yourself looking at harder and harder pornography to get aroused? Have you ever deleted Tinder and sworn never to swipe again, only to see yourself re-downloading the app over and over? Are you in a loving, monogamous relationship, but yet can't stop cheating on your partner? If you answered yes to any of these, you might be showing signs of sex addiction. Or you might just be going through a phase where you act out by using sexual behaviors to change the way you feel. That's the thing with sex and love addiction. It isn't always obvious what is and isn't problematic behavior. When I think of addiction, I think of drugs and alcohol. The negative effects of drug and alcohol abuse are pretty obvious. Loss of employment, DUIs, suicide, divorce, overdoses. And the treatment is pretty simple. You go to rehab, you do some AA, and you stop using drugs and alcohol. It's not easy, but it's pretty black and white. What about when we're addicted to behaviors and substances that are necessary for survival, like food or sex? How do we balance our desires for things that can be as addictive and as painful as alcoholism, but that we need to sustain ourselves? I don't have those answers, which is why I've invited Ashley Miller to the show. She's a psychotherapist in San Francisco who specializes in treating folks with addiction issues. Together, we talk about the many different ways in which sex addiction can show up in your life, how it can negatively affect you and the people around you and what steps you can take to start the recovery process. Ashley shares with us, confidentially, of course, case studies from her practice, including one about her hot client. And I get a second opinion from Ashley about why my therapist thinks I'm still single after all these years of looking for my special person. I'm Sean Galanos, and this is The Love Drive. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Ashley Miller. Yep. Hi. Hello. (laughs) Could you please introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Ashley Miller, and I'm a psychotherapist in San Francisco. And one of my specialties is working with people in recovery and addiction. And then I also give trainings to new therapist interns on what to look for, how to work with addiction, uh, because I think it's a really underserved population. Do you have any experience working with sex addicts? I do. How did you get into that line of work? Well, addiction's my specialty in general. So whether it's food addiction, sex addiction, alcoholism, compulsive spending, I mean, addiction shows up in a lot of ways. And so really, I started doing a lot of trainings and I got into recovery 12 years ago. And so I was really familiar with addiction. And so that's sort of what became my specialty. So as a therapist, as my practice grew, colleagues, internship places, like I was getting a ton of referrals and eventually sex addicts and love addicts and all kinds of addicts started showing up in my practice. Yeah. I think actually one of my, he might've been my fifth or sixth client was a sex addict that I ended up working with for many years and saw what's possible and transformational in recovery. Was this the hot client? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Do you want me to say more? Yeah, sure. Uh, Yeah, I had a client and it was my first male client. And so I was a new intern and um, I was so afraid I'd be attracted to him. And I was like so nervous. And he was really good looking and we were probably around the same age. He might have been a little younger than me. 
And people would joke like, oh, you're hot clients here because interns would let them up, you know. So usually when I sit with someone, I'm highly intuitive and I can spot addiction pretty quickly or if someone's been raised with alcoholic parents or um, there's codependent stuff, it's like I kind of zoom in on that. And so the first three sessions, I knew there was addiction, but I, you know, he didn't really drink. He didn't smoke pot. I knew his parents had some high-functioning alcoholism stuff. And then I think by our third session, he mentioned that he can get lost in um, porn for hours and masturbate. Do you want to wait to go into like yeah, how I can, worked with it? Yeah, we can wait. Okay. Yeah. So cliffhanger. There you go. Cliffhanger. Yeah, we're going to be back to the hot client with the porn addiction. So uh, you have a lot of experience with addiction and you mentioned food, uh, gambling or debt, uh, alcohol, drugs, sex. Are they all sort of the same? Yes. I mean, I think when, you, when you're dealing with alcoholism and drug abuse, it's really black and white where you can stop. When it comes to more of the behavioral like food addiction, sex addiction, compulsive debting, it's on a continuum. And really the person in recovery, it's we help them find like, what's your bottom line, right? So like for food addicts, sometimes it's like no sugar for somebody or it's no binging. For sex addicts, it could be no masturbating to porn. But other people may be able to manage that over time. With addiction, there's so much shame and guilt, like something's wrong with me because they can't stop the behavior. But ultimately, they're trying to get relief and soothe themselves. So usually it's kind of that black void, that hole that someone's really trying to fill. And it could be with people, sex, you know, like it's insatiable. And so it needs to come from something bigger than you and something that can actually nourish you, which like therapy, recovery, higher power. I mean, at some point in my life, I have tried to use all of those behaviors and substances to fill some sort of lack or need in my life. Mm -hmm. And I've always struggled. I mean, before I got sober, I struggled with drugs and alcohol, with food, sugar, carbs, exercise, no exercise, tobacco. I mean, I smoked forever. Mm -hmm. Then I vaped, then I chewed, then I dipped. <laughs> and then it was just this vicious cycle. Yeah. Welcome to being an addict. It's yeah. cross addiction. You're just finding ways to soothe. And again, I think with the alcohol and drugs, you can stop that, but everything else is on the continuum. It's not like you're never going to overeat again, or you're never going to like jerk off to get relief because you're feeling uncomfortable, right? <laughs> but it's just when it's um, when it starts to take over and really impact uh, most areas of your life, and it's like soul sucking. That that's what I would look at. Yeah, I've I've uh, given the example to someone who didn't really understand addiction. If you are compulsively showering to the point that it gets in the way of you functioning normally mm -hmm. and going to work, attending family functions, yeah. paying your bills, then you have a problem with showers. And so it wasn't That's really a great analogy. Yeah, it wasn't really the 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 substance, but it's, you know, what is the behavior that's getting in the way of, Absolutely. of normally fun fun functioningly functioning normally? Absolutely. Absolutely. Can we describe sex addiction uh -huh. and just kind of get a little bit more fine-tuned on that? Mm -hmm. So sex addiction can look a lot of different ways, but ultimately it's an obsessive compulsive thought. It can feel all-consuming and until you relieve that, you're going to be consumed with it. So a lot of times it's like thinking about all day long how you can't wait to get home to watch porn to masturbate for hours, let's say. It could be obsessively like messaging a million women because you're trying to get laid even though you're married. I mean, 
Did I just touch on something? Yeah, I, you, I gave you big eyes because I've done that before. Yeah, well, but that, I'm not married. Yeah, good news. Unless, I mean, I would like to have a partner. So Yeah, I mean, good news that you weren't doing it while you were married. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit sad, but it's also, you're right. I wasn't cheating on but, anybody. But, you know, there's a little bit of love addiction. I think it's just wanting attention, wanting to feel good. And it's okay. Like, we all do it. We all have a version of it. And it's what, how extreme is it? But ultimately, it's having a behavior you can't stop that you swear off. So this is where all addictions come in. So sex addiction as well. You do something, you get the relief, you're, or you're fighting it all day, you get the relief and you're like, fuck, I'm never going to do that again. And you get up and you do it again. And then you have guilt and shame. You're powerless to stop. And you've tried multiple ways to curb it. So with alcoholism, it's like maybe you just go to beer and you only drink at night, right? With sex addiction, it could just be like, okay, I'm only masturbating when I get home. Or... um, I'm only going to have one one lover or like it's all these rules you try to put on yourself to stop a compulsive behavior and you just can't. So you mentioned shame mm-hmm. and I'm just wondering uh, what role does shame play in, in addiction in general? general. I think it's the number one thing that destroys addicts. Yeah. Shame is so incredibly painful to feel. It's toxic. People feel ashamed that they can't control their behavior. Like they're fucked up. Something's wrong with me. But ultimately, like, no, there's some brain chemistry. There's some obsessive looping that's happening that you can't control yourself. Like it's you're not fucked up. You're there's not something fundamentally wrong with you. It's that you need support. That that's all really this is. And the only thing that heals shame is being in contact with another person. And talking kind to yourself. But for the most part, it's being seen. That's why 12-step recovery programs are so successful. I think actually probably the most successful in terms of working with addictions because you're in a group and people are sharing like I masturbated for hours on end and I was raw and, you know, or bleeding or I mean, really extreme stuff that you would think no one talked about or food acts saying I fucking picked up food out of the trash can and ate it. I threw it away three times and I couldn't fucking stop. There's a relief in the humanity of like, oh, I'm not alone. Mm. So that is that's the bomb in my opinion. And so even in therapy, when people share what they're doing, how they feel about it, like it's, this is stuff is really uncomfortable to talk about with another person. So, you know, the space I hold is having compassion. Like I get it. Like you're just trying to feel whole. Like ultimately that's what we're all trying to do to a certain version. So shame's a huge piece of this shame and isolation. Yeah. And it sounds like normalizing the behavior is really, really helpful. A hundred percent. In my experience, every time I have shame around a behavior, whether it's some weird sex thing or mm. the fact that I, when I go get bagels, Montreal is known for their bagels, oh. the Montreal style bagels. They're smaller and sweeter than a normal, like a New York style bagel. FYI, everybody. When I get a bagel, I will get six of them and I will eat them all in a row. Yeah. So like- Before I get home. Yeah. So again, and I'm covered in sesame seeds. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to talk to people about that. When I tell them the story, I feel shame. I tell them the story and then people, people like, and then once in a while you get someone go, I do the same thing with donuts yeah, or exactly. like you must've been having a rough day. You know, and I've been in recovery 12 years. I've had versions of every addiction, you know, mm. like where I'm overspending or overeating or whatever it is. Caffeinating. Yeah. I mean, it could be anything. It's, 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 it's trying to feel okay in my own skin. Mm. So when someone shares like they ate six bagels, it's like, yeah, so you must have been having a hard day. So like, how do you take care of yourself the rest of the day? 
I call it crushing a six pack of bagels. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. And it's funny, right? And it's fucking painful what it does to your digestion and you don't feel good about yourself. And, you know, my poop smells like yeast after mm. so you're baking some, some in the, in the oven. Yeah. <laughs> It's true. We can laugh about it. And, but you know, no one's ever said you must be having a rough day. I feel like my friends, like we just laugh about it more than sort of scratch at what the underlying issue is. Exactly. And usually, yeah, it was a rough day. It was something to do with my business, something to do with the Feeling way- rejected, whatever it was. Rejected, be. body image. Body image is huge. Body image. And, and like body image, then I'm going to go crush- some, ba- yeah, some bagels. Yeah, but, but what's happening is the shame is so intense. Like, I fucking hate my body or I'm gaining weight or I'm aging or whatever it would be. The shame is so intense. Like, to me, the image I get of shame is like it's just an inferno inside. And so eating, you shove it down. Drinking, fucking, what, it's, it, anything you can do to try to tame that shame. That's a great bumper I sticker. I know. <laughs> I'll TM it. <laughs> you can joke about it and I think laughing about it is fine but ultimately it's like something was triggered you were having a hard day and you were trying to you know basically tame the shame that you're unworthy that you're unattractive that you're not good enough you're not going to be loved I mean this is how far and deep it goes yeah and it feels fairly universal absolutely I don't know anyone who doesn't deal with shame or unworthiness. I think people that work, I mean, I've done a lot of psychotherapy and I've done a lot of spiritual work and and it's gotten so much better. But of course I fall into it. Like every human does. For me, if uh, I like to say that it just takes a lot to keep, it's just a lot of work to yeah. live a life and keep a human body and a human yeah. mind in sound shape. Mm-hmm. And it's just really an exercise in balance. And in order for me to feel good, you know, that includes eating well, exercising, uh, you know, volunteering, being in regular contact with... Connecting with humans. Connecting with humans, yeah. Yeah, well, that's where the, the volunteering kind of comes into that as well. Doing fulfilling work, all that stuff. And that's a lot of work to do on a daily basis. You know, it's a lot of work. Being stuck in a cycle of addiction and fucking hating your life. That's that's, a lot of work. That's true. And so I think over time it gets better, the more stable, more okay with ourselves we become. But those things you're choosing to do because you want to thrive. Being human is hard, (laughs) but I really think we're here to be um, of service in the world and to like show what's possible. So that's how I live. That's how I work in my practice. It's like anything's fucking possible. So yeah, you're meant to be fulfilled with your work. You're meant to be in fulfilled in relationship. You're meant to like um, feel sexy in your body, you know, and like we're humans. So then we fall in the hole of like binging or texting a million people or whatever it is because we're triggered. Growing up in families does a lot of shit yeah you know that we're kind of untangling ourselves from so you're doing you're doing the work to have a different life yeah and you're right it is more work it was harder for me before i found sobriety Mm -hmm. i felt like i was on a very unpleasant chaotic roller coaster that i couldn't get off of yeah Welcome to addiction. Yeah. I mean, every night I would say, I'm not doing this again. Yeah. And even in sobriety from drugs and alcohol, I've, I've, you know, engaged in behaviors either like 
compulsively tindering mm-hmm. to get That's a big a, one. an ego boost from the match. Mm-hmm. Not even chatting with anyone. Yeah, just, just the match that someone thought you were attractive. Yeah. What the fuck? It's so weird, <laughs> you know? And then I would... Tinder is the only app that I have downloaded and deleted. A million times. Yeah. That app is designed like a gambling app. So Tinder modeled that so it would be an addictive process. So, you know, you just fell in the hole. Yeah, it works. It works. It works. And internet companies have been, they hire people whose whole job is, is to, to, app, to... How to get you engaged and stay obsessed and addicted. So they can sell us ads. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So One thing I wanted just to say is that... Um, I grew up with alcoholism that my, like many generations, whether it's food, alcoholism, sex, spending, I think when you grow up with addiction in the family, there's a a hole that's created. I felt like a shell of a person even before, I probably was acting out with food, sugar really early on. But what I was thinking when you were talking earlier about the shame piece, like I remember thinking like, I feel like a shell of a person. Like how do people do normal life? Like how do people, fu- like how did they do life? I just didn't understand. And so it wasn't until doing personal work that I kind of felt like I began to grow from the inside out. And that's what I f- see with clients. So people like even in a six month period are completely transformed human beings. You know, not that the shit's not up, not that they don't cross a dick, not, but that they actually start, it feels like having a real human on the inside, not just this facade of like, yeah, I'm fine doing life good. Yeah. So I just want to keep hammering home that recovery and um, so much as possible when people get help. Well, I'm excited. We're, we are going to talk about treatment and what that looks like and what people can expect in a certain amount of time. And, and I do know that that when you look at this stuff, it's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. It's the only way that I know to get better is to name the behavior and just be honest about the experience that I'm having and and see a trusted professional yeah. that that has way more information and training to deal with these kinds of situations because I can't yeah I can't help myself sometimes It's like you're stuck in a box and the directions to get outside of the box are written on outside of the box so you actually need someone <laughs> to go hey open the flap you know like here's the ladder like we all need a team of people and one thing about finding a therapist I want to say is that a Unfortunately, a lot of therapists, I don't think, understand addiction. And so if you're really struggling um, or think you have a problem, when you're looking for a therapist, ideally someone who has experience in it is really helpful because they can get you the resources and um, name stuff directly. Uh, I I have a 74-year-old client who's been in therapy since she was 18, and I've been seeing her maybe five years. And in all that alcoholic, and in all that time, no one ever named her an alcoholic. So my first session, we're talking, give me a history. And I'm like, you're an alcoholic. And, you know, all those years was someone trying to help her manage her wine at night. So I think it's really important when you're um, seeking professional help that they understand addiction. So, yes, I think that's awesome. And I also think that it kind of takes an alcoholic to, rec- to recognize an alcoholic. Yes, so there, I think there are great therapists who aren't alcoholics. Absolutely. Who might not be as comfortable. Naming it. Yeah, calling it out right off the bat. And my uh, therapist who I saw for several years in my, mid, in my early 20s, when, I, when my alcoholism and my drug addiction were sort of at its, at its height, on the second meeting, he had me fill out, you know, how much do you use type of uh-huh, questionnaire. questionnaire. 
and I think I might I must have scored off the charts. And he still didn't say, I think you're an alcoholic. He let me figure it out, and it took a year and a half. Uh-huh. Because maybe, I mean, I was 22 years old. I was, a, I was a squirrel, you know? And I think that if he had told me that I was an alcoholic at the age of 22, I would have left and never come back. Yeah, which happens. Which happens. And that's fine. That's just part of the, that's part of that path. But I'm so grateful for him to not have done that. Yeah. Because when I finally showed up and I was like, hey, I think I have a drinking problem. He was like, yeah, you do. Uh-huh. Go to AA and work the steps. Yeah. And, and, and I was only supposed to, to stop for a year. Because then I was going to get my life back uh-huh. back in order. That's a good one. I use that a lot, yeah, too. <laughs> I'm like, just try this for six months. It's not forever. Just try it for six months. And that was almost a decade ago. Uh-huh. So. so here's the thing, Sean. I think that's a really good point. Sometimes I have clients where I can say there's no way I can even touch this yet, that we need to build the relationship for a couple mon- months so that they trust me enough so I can name something. So. I think all ways of working, it's just that if the therapist is a little more aware with addiction, they have more tools. Yeah. When a client comes to see you that has a problem with sex addiction, do they come up, do do they like bring it up or or is that something that you have to uncover yourself? Usually uncovering. I mean, I think if someone was like self-aware and was like, I'm in recovery, I'm sober this many years and now I can't stop looking at porn. I mean, there's sometimes that that can happen, but more often than not, the person, um, like I'm recently working with someone who's newly sober, just like a couple of months and, um, is kind of on a break with a relationship and is just kind of like the tender thing where it's just all over the place and like wanting to sleep with coworkers and really self-sabotaging behavior. And so when he's telling me these things, I'll go, yeah, so sex addiction. And he'll go, what? And he'll be like, fuck you, Ashley. No, it's not. You know, I'm just, I'm dying here. I'm, at least I'm not drinking. I'm like, which is true. But we just kind of want to name that there's flavors of this. Usually it's me kind of pointing it out. And it doesn't mean that his recovery has to be a super abstinent, you know, mm-hmm. s- sort of way of working with it. It's more that the more consciousness and awareness, the more power you have. Mm-hmm. Right. So like, I think awareness is like 80% of this. Yeah. Awareness. I mean, I've always said that, that awareness is great because it gives you an idea of what you're doing Mm -hmm. and it only gets you so far Yeah. because then you actually have to change the behavior and awareness actually, it's great because it, it highlights that there's an issue. It also kind of sucks because it means you can't really continue doing the thing that you were doing. Unconsciously. It doesn't work anymore. It sucks. You can't turn the lights back off. You can't. can't. So like clients will say that. So people that get sober or something and then, you know, you always hit a period where you're just like, I fucking hate this and this isn't fair and people get to do this normally and I don't. And it's like this just rage and anger and grief. And, you know, it's a lot to live a different life when you're an addict. And so it's like, yeah, all that is true. Like to be with all those feelings that come up. And sometimes I'll have a client like this client that I'm working with. He's like, I just want the easy path. I'm just going to go back to drinking and fucking. And um, and I'm like, absolutely, you can do that. I sure. said, and my voice is going to be in your head. Rec- AA is going to be in your head. And it's not that it's going to be this nice fantasy soft landing. Most likely it's going to get pretty extreme where you're going to lose friends, family, most likely die because how extreme he is. But yeah, mm-hmm. we all die. Addiction can take us down. Yeah. It might be quicker. slow and painful, but yeah. 
I feel that maybe sex addiction is different in the sense that, uh, I mean, you can die from STIs mm-hmm. and you can die from other sorts of... Shame, suicide. Shame, suicide. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. Auto asphyxiation, auto erotic asphyxiation. Oh, yeah. That's true. That's true. <laughs> uh, what, what would be some other effects or consequences of having abnormal sexual compulsive behaviors or sex addiction? Well, ultimately, it's not being able to have an intimate relationship with yourself or another human. Because it gets in the way. It gets in the way, you know, because there was a great movie and I can't, you might remember the name. It's with, um, is it Joseph Gordon Levitt? Joseph Levitt Gordon? Oh, yeah, yeah. And when it was on sex addiction and basically he was like this kind of muscled up, like fancy car dude that just like jerked off to porn all the time and didn't like, didn't actually even want to have sex. He was like, I don't want the real thing. Like she has needs, she talks. You know, she doesn't have these big, huge, fake porn style boobs. Like, and this came up with the, my good looking client, actually, which we can segue if you want into that. Is that um, so he would lose hours and hours on porn, started masturbating at a super young age, where, you know, when your needs aren't getting met, um, there there's a release in the brain, the dopamine, right? So yeah. you get that ah, relief. And so that was his only way to deal with feelings his whole life. And so, named sex addiction he got into slaw which is sex and love addicts anonymous it's a 12-step program um for people with sex addiction i've been you have yeah a couple times and there's also sex addicts anonymous i haven't been to that one that can be there's even more than that yeah sex addicts anonymous you know like pedophiles could be there i mean there's so many variations so this client, so he got into slaw and got a sponsor and worked the steps and he came to therapy like two or three times a week and he was really doing, I mean, I feel like it was like my first like success story where like he really transformed as a person. But what happened was, um, so he ended up abstaining from masturbating maybe six months to a year, like just because it would be consuming. So we would be in session and we'd be talking about like an early childhood thing or something where some shame came up and he would, he would be able to name. I just thought of porn because it's like alcoholics will do that. Like I just thought of a beer or a cigarette part of his story. So eventually it's like he started to have a healthier sexuality with himself and he met a woman that he really liked and, um, she was really healthy actually. And, um, they ended up getting married, but they years and years later. But part of the issue was he hadn't really had a sex life without this kind of obsessive compulsive porn addiction. So he would be like, like, she's amazing, but like, she's kind of plain to me. Like I kind of, I fantasize about the porn star in the beginning, had a hard time getting an erection. Addiction's progressive. So with alcoholism, let's say the frequency and quantity keeps having to increase to keep getting the same hit. Sex and porn addiction is the same thing. So that's why nowadays sex, I mean, 80% of it's super aggressive, super violent. Like there's- On on porn. On porn. porn. Not like- regular human sex yeah porn sex and so in order it has to be harder more um graphic like so that's what happens with porn addiction is like you you keep upping the ante of what you're watching which you're kind of like training your brain to only be aroused to that well it's kind of like if you've never driven a car and you've only watched like the fast and furious and think oh that's how you drive is the fast and the furious like same thing with porn sex like it's crazy it's i mean not that you can't have that kind of sex but a 18 year old boy who's never had sex thinking that's what it is is like 
grabbing her face and fucking her and yeah coming on her face yeah but the reality is that it's more like a 1984 Centra, nissan sentra totally and you know it's reliable <laughs> and it'll get you where you want to go and it does the exactly. job exactly and sometimes you can yank the e-brake and, yeah. and do a little uh, <laughs> but for the most part <laughs> you know yes, I, I agree the way that shows up in my life this um idea of harder and harder porn I think there was a point in my life where I was looking at stuff that was just weird, just weird stuff. And I had to like go look at weirder and weirder stuff. That's it. But that stopped. Uh-huh. I don't I do not do that anymore. But now when I look at porn, I look for a very specific type of person. Like oh, I want I want the model to have like, to basically look like Natalie Portman and Kira Knightley mixed together uh-huh. or something. So that's like, because that's my ideal. Yeah, for, that's for, what turns you on. That's what turns me on. Or that's what on. you're attracted to. I'm attracted to like, you know, petite athletic brunettes uh-huh. that like do yoga. So I don't think that's a problem. It's just it's just very hard to find that kind of porn. Yeah. I'm be- just saying it's a problem because it's hard to find. Yeah. Well, you might find it actually in more women-centered porn, like women filmmakers. It's true. Yeah, the feminist be- porn sites. Yeah. There's um something actually. That shit ain't free though. Oh, so there you go. <laughs> so maybe you should make your own porn with your ide- ideal models. Uh, oh, I, you know, I, ideally, I would just like to find a, a woman to but, yeah. to have a, a normal, intimate relationship with that yeah. turns me on. Yeah, that, which is possible and which is what you're moving towards. Yeah. Yes. By actually even toning down the porn, like when you said it got weirder and like eventually it's like you were able to stop that and maybe because you got more fulfilled in other areas. And now that's kind of what you're like. I don't think porn's bad i don't think like some people in recovery can have it in moderate doses in a way Mm -hmm. some people can at all so it really just depends on um how it works for you and how like how what role it plays in your life it's played different roles and i've used it more than other times sometimes i don't use it at all sometimes i use it sort of like a like a maintenance thing Mm -hmm. uh, every couple days it hasn't really gotten in the way of me having relationships. Yeah, I don't hear that. Like I often, I would much rather have sex with somebody. Yeah. Though. Which. Which. In that movie, like with Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Levitt. It's such know, a hard name. G- G.I. Uh, G- I can't remember the name. Yeah. Joe. Something Joe. Yeah. But basically, um, he didn't want to have sex with women. Yeah. Eventually he did, but like that was a really good example of what happened. Yeah. And that was the, wasn't that the end of the movie? He mm-hmm. had a girl, he got a girlfriend and he was. And she was actually an older woman and it was having intimate sex and it was actually making eye contact. It was crying, being vulnerable. Cause you know, I think what happens with addiction is you're trying to fill this insatiable hole that it will never get filled mm. ever. And so that when you can, can have a more, a better connection with yourself and with another person like sex can be like a spiritual experience it can be deep like so fulfilling Mm. and not just this empty like (gasps) like you can't wait to get more because you're insatiable yeah which is why i have pretty much stopped having casual sex with partners that i don't know Uh because i used to do a lot of that and it was fun and it was easy and it Mm. was Okay, Cupid and Tinder and mm-hmm. in San Francisco, and there was no shortage of interesting, yeah. fun women, but they were strangers, you know? It, ultimately, it's empty. It's empty. And and it as soon as I was done, as soon as I came, I wanted them to leave. Yeah. 
And that, that, I mean, that's the sign right there that, that there's no connection. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I don't do that anymore, even though sometimes I have the, I have the compulsion to, I yeah. want to, I just know that it's going to feel worse after. Yeah. So that's enough self-control to go, I'm feeling off or I'm feeling the need to connect or I'm lonely and I want to get that like relief, but it's going to ultimately feel worse. So it's like, I'm not going to eat the bagels. I'm actually going to go get a cup of coffee and an omelet or something yeah. and call a friend and just say, hey, I'm having a shitty day. I, you know, I was rejected or someone didn't pick up this thing on my podcast. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or I'll go watch a movie and eat a reasonable amount of yeah. homemade popcorn. Yeah, totally. And drink lots of water and go to bed and wake up at 7 a.m. and feel pretty good about myself. Exactly. And also, every now and then, if I'm wanting some weird new sexual experience, I'll go there. Mm-hmm. But I would rather do it with someone that I have some sort of connection, connection with. with. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's what I have to say about that. And one thing about your client who didn't masturbate for, for six months. Mm-hmm. I've done that, and I think I had like I used to have crazy wet dreams. Wet dreams. Oh my that god, that happened all the time. <laughs> yeah, all the time. I just felt like because obviously there's like such a buildup of, oh, of sperm, totally. and it sort of does need to be. Yeah, Chinese medicine says that every eight days is the perfect amount of time for to a, release for a man to release, yeah, to or mm-hmm. to ejaculate. Yeah, that happened a lot for him. And he told you about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, a, a part of how I work is. Uh, I work in the relationship. So wounding happens in relationship and only healing can happen in relationship. So we get wounded as children and that ideally when you have a good relationship with your therapist, it's like working all the stuff out. So like him feeling like I would judge him or like he, it was his first time in therapy. And so I think we did such good work that he could come in and be like, oh my God, I had another wet dream. And I feel like I'm, am I cheating? Like he had so much shame and like this idea that it was going to look perfect, mm. you know? And it's like, no, it's messy. You slip up. Like it's literally messy. It's literally messy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so he, you know, yeah, he was actually one of my favorite clients. He did really well. I'm happy for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and for you. Yeah. It was really rewarding. So you've mentioned a few times this hole mm-hmm. that we want to fill with things that don't that stop working. They work for a while and they stop working. What's this hole and how can we fill it in a way that's healthy? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Whether you're an addict or not, I think that's we're all struggling with a version of it. How do you fill it with something that actually can... Um, nourish you. So I work spiritually with clients too. Like if you can connect with something bigger than yourself. So that could be um, nature of like going to the ocean, just being like the same universe that made this ocean, that made these trees, that made these butterflies. Like I'm made of that too. Like fill me with that. Right. So, or it could be the divine, it could be God, it could be higher power. It doesn't really matter. It's connecting with something bigger than yourself. Like asking for help, bring me relief, you know, um, make me feel whole. But ultimately, I think it's having healing relationships is one, having a connection to higher power. And then also the self-care, like how can you be gentle with yourself? Because we're really good at being um, really hard and critical of ourselves to, you know, the 10th degree. So to actually change, be like, oh, I just had a bad day and I looked at porn or like, bless my heart. I say that all the time. I used to have a roommate who she'd make mistakes and she'd go, bless my heart. I made a mistake. So it's literally like, bless me. I made a mistake. 
I can be really nasty to myself. Yeah, we all can. And it's so sad. It is sad. I'm way nastier to myself than I am to anybody else. Mm-hmm. But that's that's where I think needs most attention and care because we all are so crit. I mean, me included, like that was to be so hard on myself was how I lived. And so literally after living with this roommate, I would say that all the time, like, bless my heart. Like I freaked out or I had a really hard day or it's, you need to reparent yourself. So it's almost like if you were your kid again, that, you know, if a kid's tantruming, like say they're lost in the store, they break something, they're just wailing, you're not going to be like, you fucking idiot. God damn it. Unless you're an abusive parent. Some people might. Yeah. yeah. Some people might. (laughs) Yeah. They're probably not listening to the show. So if you can go, hey, you're okay. Like part of what my therapist does with me, what I do with clients, what I do with friends. It's if you notice my tone, it's like, hey, let's slow it down. Like, you're okay. Like, of course you had a hard day. You went to see family for a week. Like, you're unraveled right now. Like, this will pass, but like, like let's lean in with care. So I do that same thing with myself now, you know, where it's just like constantly putting my hand on my heart going, you're all right. Like, you're human. You're human. I think that's a great that's a great step is to just forgive forgive yourself. Yeah, no, number one is is forgive yourself for not being a perfect human. And and then on top of that, when I'm having a hard time and and I I talk about self-care quite a bit with friends and on the blog mm-hmm. is you know, is eating well, going outside, getting some exercise, and sort of all the stuff we talked earlier spending time with friends, doing some, I, I volunteer at a bike shop now. So like helping people fix their bikes, doing something outside of myself, but also doing things that, that I know will make me feel good and that will bring me probably dopamine. Absolutely. Right. So yeah, being kind, forgiving myself, and then also actively taking steps towards making myself feel good. And that also might include like having some pizza Absolutely. and watching a movie. Absolutely. It's, I don't think it's like this Puritan you know, we're like angel wings and you never overeat or you never like yell or you never, you know, it's, I don't think it's about being perfect. Or download Tinder again to swipe and yeah. get matches. Yeah. It's not about that. I think it's how do you have compassion and self-care of like, all right, like I'm struggling right now and like I need support. That's, those to me is like the um, car warning light. Mm. I just need support. Like, what am I needing? Am I needing to talk to my therapist or a friend or go to a meeting or whatever it is? They're just warning lights when we act out. Yeah. Yeah. I usually reach out. I I, I make a lot of phone calls, phone calls, especially because I'm in a different city than most of my friends. Mm-hmm. And I've always been a bit of a talker. So phone calls allows me to connect with people that know what's going on with me. Yeah. And so I can drop in immediately to, hey, I'm having a hard time. Can you, do you have 10 minutes? Absolutely. And that feels so much better than sitting alone with this, whatever the sh- the shame or the disappointment. Well, and your needs are met without something empty. You're actually connecting with another human. So you're getting relief without having to hurt yourself with Tinder or whatever it would be. Yeah. So we're sort of, we're sort of diving into this next section that I want to talk about, which is how do you, how do you treat your patients with sex addiction? Mm-hmm. We already sort of started talking about healing wounds uh, in, in the relationship mm-hmm. between the therapist and the client. What else does treatment look like for someone who has a sex addiction? Well, it, it depends on the severity of it. So some people actually, 
in order to kind of reboot your brain, you will need to abstain from the behavior. I think group support is uh, incredibly important. So if I'm working with someone with a severe addiction or that's heavier, like on the more extreme end, let's say, um, I won't work with them unless they are in recovery themselves because it hasn't been my experience that unless people get additional support, it's really hard to stop a behavior that you've been doing every single day for many years and 50 minutes a week, or even if I see someone twice a week, isn't enough to touch it because you need to build a community. Like you have people in recovery you can call and they can remind you, give you tools, get to a meeting, whatever it is that actually brings recovery and you're in a solution. So with some people, they're going to need to abstain from the behavior. I think mostly it's working with shame and having someone be seen. So it's committing. Therapy isn't like, you know, you do this six weeks and then you're done. It's it's committing like this is a process and there's time and it gets better. And But usually people, I think, want a quick fix and it's not that simple. I think that if you do struggle with it and you're in a 12-step program and therapy, uh, you accelerate the process in my experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So get help, get help, yeah. get help. That's all. That's that's treatment. That's it. Get help. And you can't do it yourself. That, yes. Most people can't auto-treat. No. Because the instructions on the outside of the box. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's it's just not possible because I, you know, addiction, the main like the main ingredients is isolation and shame. Yeah. So Talk to another human, get support. 12 Steps sort of solves that because it it in, introduces fellowship into your life. It, it, regular contact with other addicts yeah. that know, hopefully know about you and what's going on and can sort of track your progress over a long period of time. Yeah. And then also enlisting the help of a professional who's trained to see other things that just regular fellowship and 12 step because 12 step isn't therapy. No, it's, it's, it's one aspect of it. It's one. aspect. I mean, it's one aspect of the healing process. I mean, I think I 12 step a lot of people. I think it's incredible and there's deeper stuff. Usually we need to work on and that having a trained professional that can guide you through that process incredibly beneficial. You mean by 12, by 12 stepping somebody, you mean introducing them to the world of 12 step recovery? Yes. Yeah. That is a fact. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some people might not know it. Yeah, I know. I is. just, thank you. I, I appreciate the clarification. <laughs> also bottom line, you mentioned bottom line earlier. What is that? I, I'm not exactly sure. A bottom line is like the, that's the behavior that I won't do. Yeah. So, so for like drugs and alcohol, it'd be like drugs and alcohol is the bottom line. Yeah. So for, so it's basically what you would be abstaining from in that addiction. So it's gray with food, with sex, with shopping, um, gam- well, not gambling, gambling, you just stop. Or, maybe, maybe you'll gamble online for like free gambling sites. Maybe yeah. that'll give you a little... So maybe if you're cheat if you're someone who cheats a lot or who has had a lot of affairs, maybe your bottom line is that you will no affairs, no affairs, but you'll still fuck your wife. Yeah, so absolutely. It's it's like you can masturbate without porn. You can masturbate without porn. You know, it's very difficult, but you can do it. Yeah, you know, I worked I worked with a client one time who I saw them as a couple, and then he came in individually because I they weren't treatable because they had too much stuff. It was more like you each need to work on yourselves. And then get into couples. And so I worked with him and he was an alcoholic. And um, he, and that's the reason the 
partner the wife was leaving was because of his drinking. And so he he was come I saw him. I really liked him, but he would say, um, Ashley, I am working on myself. I'm going to yoga. I'm meditating. I'm swimming. I'm not even jerking off to porn. I'm jerking off to pictures of my wife. I mean, that's pretty good. Right? I know. <laughs> and was working I, on and I go, yeah, and she's not complaining that you meditate too much. She's complaining. I said, so what are you doing about the drinking? He's like, oh, touche. <laughs> because he wasn't, he wasn't willing to look at the drinking. He wanted to change all these aspects of his life and make him better, but he wasn't going to look at the drinking. Sure. I mean, why would you, unless you were ready? Yeah. To, so that to, was a process to really look at the look at the drinking or looking mm -hmm. at the underlying issue. Mm -hmm. So that bottom line is coming up with so food addiction. It could be no sugar, but of course you're eating food. You know. I mean, I've told myself I'm not going to look at porn, and then I find myself looking at really weird uh, hashtags on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Like the peach hashtag, which is like a lot of booties. Mm -hmm. Hoping to get a booty that's, you know, just the right booty that for me. That just gives you that enough little hit of a relief is where that, it's like a cigarette. Yeah. Is that possibly what Natalie Portman's booty would look like? Mm -hmm. Which possibly. actually, she, it was, she did show it in the beginning of one of a Wes Anderson movie, there was like- I'm a, not totally familiar with Natalie Parton's nudity or care. Okay, well, I do. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so trying we, to say which- So we know your type. <laughs> uh, when we were talking about bottom line and, and how it can be pretty black and white for, for drugs and alcohol, but it becomes a little bit gray for other behaviors, how do we achieve balance- in these behaviors like food and sex that I feel we need for survival. Uh-huh. How do we achieve balance with, with stuff that can be problematic, but that we also need to feel like human beings? Uh-huh. Great question. I think part of it is, so when you're on the addiction spectrum, the bottom line is more of like the behaviors that cause you the most pain. So for food addicts, it could be binging on sugar. When they take the sugar out, they, for the most part, you know, can eat more balanced food, right? Like more, um, they're not as triggered. It's not like having a sip of wine can trigger someone and they start drinking again, right? Like that's their bottom line or sex addiction. It could just be looking at porn and bottom lines can change. So in the beginning, I think with addiction and the, when you're starting to first look at it, it's so extreme, right? So in some ways you want to, people swing to the other end of the continuum where it's almost like, you know, I mean, nothing but vegetables and protein, or I'm never masturbating again. Like there's this rigidity around to, to stay safe. It's a boundary. It's a container because you're so out of control that you kind of come back to the other end of the continuum. And then with recovery and time, you find out where you are in the middle. So maybe certain um, behaviors were off limits for a really long time until you can incorporate those in a more healthy way. Like you could masturbate to porn, but there's a kind of a time limit around it. So it's that's the thing when they're not just substance substances like alcohol and drugs. There is, it's in the gray. And over time, like, you know, if you have a sponsor, which is really great, and a therapist, let's say, you're working with like, you know, actually, this is okay for me now. I'm kind of, I, I feel sane doing this. Or I get a little triggered. I can feel really lit up on it, but I'm not obsessively doing it. Great. So let's let's practice and see if that works for you. Yeah, for me in in, in pornography, I 
I never really spent like hours looking at it, but I'm always disappointed if I spend like any more than 15 minutes because I feel like I could just be doing something else. Yeah, I mean, it's like- It's more productive. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like social media addiction where you're just looking endlessly on your phone and Facebook for an hour, like such a waste of time. Huge hurts your eyeball, eyeballs. It's boring, empty. And then you do it like an hour later. Unless it's like the new episode of The Love Drive. And then you're just like locked in and it's the most <laughs> fulfilling thing on the planet ever. It's tough because I'm struggling with, uh, like I would like to just quit social media, but unfortunately that's where a lot of people get their news and get their content and I'm a content creator. Well, you could post stuff without having to get locked on and looking at everybody's stuff. Oh, I do that. I, 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 there's this thing called Nudge, that, which nukes your feed. Oh. Actually, well, one of the features is that it nudges you every however long. If you've been on social media for 10 minutes, it says, hey, you've, you've spent an hour on social media this year or, or this today. You spent 10 minutes. You spent 20 minutes. Another feature is that you can have it unfollow everything on Facebook. Oh, my God. So my feed is just is, is ads and me and memories of me. Ooh, and that's then you smart. can you can add selectively. You can start adding back like news channels that you care about, like the Atlantic, or I follow things that are sexuality and intimacy related. So professionally, I can still get content that can help me and can help my audience. That's great. But I have no idea what my friends are up to, so I have to go to their page if I am. You if know, you want to look. Yeah, what's what's Ashley Miller? Where's she been this last two years? Then I'll have to go to your page and look at it. It'll be like, oh, that's cool. Mm -hmm. Which and you did before this interview. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's great. So that's a boundary. Yeah. And it feels it feels so much better. I also unfollowed a thousand people on Instagram. Wow. Yeah. So I'm only following 200. Uh, we just mentioned this thing, this concept that is a food term anorexia you can be a sexual anorexic yeah absolutely and i think my therapist might have diagnosed me or or might have brought it up not saying that you're a sexual anorexic or relationship anorexic but that that that's something to maybe look at mm -hmm. because i've swung because i've swung to the other end of of like not having relationships with anybody yeah I mean, i've been single for the most part for the most for the last Eight years, I've been like single six and a half of those years. Mm -hmm. And and that does it, does that include like when you date someone for a few months? I don't do that. I've never done that. Really? Oh, well, I've had two girlfriends that were six months and nine months, and then one of four years, and another one when I was younger of two years. That's that's it. I, I, I don't do casual dating. It's either- You're uh, in. in. In all the way, right off the bat, I usually know it within like mm -hmm. a week or something or on the second date or mm -hmm. even on the first date. The last three girlfriends, I knew it instantly. Okay. Or uh, or I know that it's not going to be that and we'll probably have sex once or twice. And so that you tend on more on that end, but you're not actually having random sex. No, but I am. I do have sex with like lovers that I've that I've had sex with before, like mm -hmm. friends basically that I've, that I have like kept in contact with or that we hook up with. And you have good chemistry and all that. Stuff. Yeah, exactly. But we're maybe not life partners. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So this. So yeah. Sexual so, anorexia. Yeah. So she, she, she said maybe I'm to the point where, okay, I'm going to break it down. The, there were needs that weren't being met in my childhood. We've already established that that's most people. 
Yes. Welcome to a human being. Um, so I'm a human being. I had a human existence. And as a child, uh, my parents don't listen to the podcast anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> so you can talk a bunch of shit. I can talk a bunch of shit. Things were, I, I didn't get certain things that I, the, I didn't feel safe expressing my emotions as a child. I was the one who was out of control, who was throwing tantrums and to win in my family was to be the loudest. And if I was the loudest, I was out of control. So there was no winning. Because of that, I became very independent. And I was like, okay, well, I'll, I'll find my needs. I will get them met elsewhere. And now what my therapist suspect is happening is that I've moved over to anti-dependence. Well, it's not safe for me to get my needs met anywhere. And so I'm just not going to get them met. Mm -hmm. Except in certain ways, like in a professional relationship with a therapist or a couple of your program friends you're really close with. Sure. But when it comes to an intimate, vulnerable, like yeah. romantic relationship, yeah. it hasn't felt as safe. Yeah. And so avoiding it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What are you thinking about all that? I think there's hope. <laughs> no, uh, seriously. I, Wait, but that, seriously, that is that, that is that that can you know. There's like love avoidance. There's uh, sexual anorexics, and some of that can look like where someone doesn't have sex for 20 years. It could look like no masturbate, like no, no allowing themselves pleasure. That's one piece. But in talking, I have pleasure though. Yeah, in talking about or hearing what you're talking about is that it sounds like you kind of have maybe swung from one end and you're just finding your middle ground and mm. that the good thing is Sean is like you're actually wanting a partner you're wanting my sense of this is am mm. I making this up no you're you're you're, you're that, good at what you do thanks I am right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um yeah I feel like it's my calling so you're longing for it so you're opening to it and so part of that that begins the healing you're naming it. Whereas I think when with sexual anorexics or when people are highly independent, I mean, I think I was single for many, many years, celibate for years early on in recovery. Cause I just, I was so, um, I was so contained. I was so, um, walled off. I didn't even know. Right. And so eventually it's like getting safer in my skin with myself that I could be more open and, um, allow someone in. Right. And so with you, I think that's, you're not walled off though, because you're super open and super warm. <laughs> right. You know, like I don't, I mean, mine was like a rigidity fear thing. I don't experience that with you, but you're longing for it. So to me, that's what you're starting to gonna be able to call in more and more and recognizing, like, wow, like I kind of have avoided that. You know, is it the fear that like you'll be enmeshed with someone or they need you or you'll need them? I mean, that's part of therapy is actually needing and depending on your therapist because it works that muscle we're interdependent we need people it's i think needy's got this bad connotation but mm. it's like yeah we need and it's okay and when we're little and our needs aren't getting met we get the really strong message it's not okay to need i'm highly you know self-sufficient i get, keep my shit to get like so contained and so the practice for me was you know over many years of therapy was needing and depending on my therapist. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, it, to me, it just seems like progress. Like you're just moving more towards what you're wanting to call in. Yeah. We, uh, that all, that all sounds good and it feels right. And, um, and in this last session that we had a few, a uh, few days ago, actually, I was describing to her how I have relationships with, with people, with friends that I have sex with every now and then with lovers that I see, 
maybe if, if I'm in New York, I'll sleep with, you know, uh, one person. Or if I'm over here, I'll sleep with some. And everybody knows that. There's no secrets about mm-hmm. that. And she said that maybe perhaps that might be getting in the way of truly like calling in that thing that I'm actually looking for, right? That 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 intimate relationship that could be monogamous that, you know, we don't know what it, what form it's taking, but that because I'm sort of playing around with the other stuff, I'm less available to what I'm actually really looking for, mm-hmm. which is partnership. Yeah. And what comes up for me when you're sharing that is that having the lovers in the different place, it's it's safe because there's an intimacy and a vulnerability, but it's it's brief mm-hmm. so that it feels really good. And you can, I mean, because you are really warm, you know, it's like you're the type of energy in person. It's like, oh, Sean, like I haven't seen you in like 10 years. And right. It's like, yay, you know, because which is a gift, right? I think that comes through you. And it's it's just a safety, yeah. right? Which is okay, and you're wanting to do differently. So maybe that is something you're going to be working on where it's like, maybe I don't have a couple random lovers and I practice like actually dating and being in a relationship with someone. I wonder too around perfectionism, around the perfect partner. Does that come up? <laughs> <laughs> what are you laughing? Because this is turning into a therapy session. No, I, I, I'm totally okay with that. Uh, but yeah, of course that comes up. Yeah. I have this idea of the perfect, of the, the ideal partner. Yeah, which is what doesn't exist. Yeah, we, we know that. Yeah, but internally it's it's such a held model that you it's it's hard to... Um, maybe allow yourself to be imperfect as well as another person. And so that was really hard for me. Like I was so judgmental in relationship yeah. early on. And my therapist would call me that all the time because I would just be like, because that's how my family operates. A lot of critical and gossip. And, you know, so I would just be like, I cannot believe he does blah, blah, blah. And it was like, and my therapist would be like, yeah, it's human. Yeah, get you know? off your high horse. Totally, right? <laughs> but it's this, 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 this illusion of this ideal that's, um, it's insatiable. It's it's a ghost. It's not there. No, it'll never be achieved. Yeah. So if you meet someone who I feel like is good enough, let's say that yeah. you like, she meets some qualities, and then you start to lose interest because you're just like, well, she has da da da. It's like you work that in therapy. Like, well, what's triggering that? Yeah. What's coming up around that? Yeah, I've never done that because I'll just peace out. Mm-hmm. But that's where your work is, I think, is yeah. that you actually stick with it. And not that you have to be with someone that you don't want to be with, but like ride the wave. Because I think part of the love addiction, which we didn't really touch on, is that it's like that honeymoon phase or that intensity or the newness feels really good. And when you start to get into like, oh, that person does that and that's kind of irritating or they don't really take care of themselves in the way I would take care of myself. The person you begin to distance or is it normally like within three dates you're over it? I'm over it within three dates. Yeah. So yeah. it's not necessarily the honeymoon phase, let's say. I, I love the honeymoon phase. Mm. I would love, I haven't had I a honeymoon phase in forever. It's like the most fun ever. But basically, if there's no honeymoon, I'm out. Yeah. And and I, I sort of, the, the relationships that I've had in the past have been honeymoon from the get-go. Oh, the, the, got it. The three or four girlfriends that I've had. It's been honeymoon. And that's what you're looking for. I mean, that's how that in my past experience, that has been the beginning of a relationship for me. And so I guess 
now I sort of use that as the as the bar. The, the bar or but the baseline. You, but you've also changed and early on you were maybe probably more and acted out in addictions. Totally. And so who you're with, there's kind of that love and sex addiction. There could be I mean, there's ways there could be fireworks, but it was more riding on this intensity that you were running where yeah. you're might may not running that anymore. I'm not running the intensity. Yeah. So it's like, well, what's reasonable now? Yeah. So th- I, I think it's good work. That's what I would take to your therapist. I'm on the track. You are on the track. <laughs> we, okay, this this concludes the therapy portion of this podcast. That will be $170. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you, you touched on love addiction. And I think we should, we, we could go there because, okay. uh, because I, I feel like I have some experience in that department of just like looking for this ideal mm-hmm. lover partner. Mm-hmm. And I feel like other people do as well. And, and you're right. We didn't, we didn't touch on love addiction. Mm-hmm. Can you just like shed a little bit of light like on briefly yeah. do it? Yeah. Um, well, it doesn't have to be that brief. Okay. Yeah. Love addiction. Um, part of it could be looking for this ideal that doesn't exist. And it's just like you meet someone and it's like, <gasps> they're the most amazing thing ever. And they're perfect. And your whole world is revolving around another person. And you put them on a pedestal. Yes. And they're perfect. And um, you're doing everything for them. And you completely lose yourself. It becomes all about this other person. Mm. And then what can happen, there's also love avoidance where it can be this like amazing, you come together and it's, oh my gosh, I, I love being with you. And it's so intense for a couple of weeks, let's say. And then when a person really begins to attach to that person, the love avoidant is like, uh-uh, this is too much and begins to distance. And then there's a pursuer. I was in that relationship. Yep. And I, then yeah. when, the per, when the pursuer gets flavors of the distancing and says, fuck this, or plays games or whatever, they distance and then the avoidant becomes a pursuer. So you're doing this distance pursuer dance that doesn't really bring two humans together. What a nightmare. Yeah, it is. That was, I had a relationship like that and it was a nightmare. It was a total nightmare. Yeah. And so it's not that you don't get excited with a new person and you think about them all the time. And I mean, that's human. We all do that. It's just when it becomes obsessive Mm. or prevents you from being in relationship or you go relationship to relationship because you hit the same patterns over and over and over again. Yeah. You want that hit. Mm-hmm. That honeymoon hit. Yeah, it's awesome. Oh, that God, hit. it's amazing. <laughs> but I have to say, like working through that too, it's like y- you get more comfortable, like being in your own skin and seeing their humanness and your own humanness, and the intimacy and vulnerability um, is way more satisfying. I so want that. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's coming, right? I think so. Yeah, I mean, it can't not. It can. It can. You cannot not change by doing the work you're doing. That's why I tell my clients, people come in hopeless and I know it's possible for my personal experience to change from the inside out. Like inside out, I know what's possible in healing. So like you cannot not change mm. by doing personal work, period. It, well, actually in any aspect of your life, Absolutely. if you do work, the work, whatever the work needs to mm-hmm. be, which is whatever you need to do in order to change something, something's going to happen. When you do the work, something's going to happen. Like when you go to work, you get paid. 
You don't get you don't go to work, you don't get paid. Exactly. So if you do work and it's like for me in this podcast, if I want a larger audience, if I want better sound quality, if I want more interesting guests, I do the work of producing a good podcast, of finding guests, of marketing it as best as I can, and then things will happen. Yeah. I'm not in control of the things. Like I don't know exactly who's gonna say yes or how many followers I'm gonna get per episode, but stuff does change. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, if you're doing good work, the change is good. Uh-huh. Absolutely. I just lastly with the love addiction piece is if you find yourself completely obsessed and consumed and like ev- your mood is dependent on what that person um, treats you. If they're giving you emojis and then it makes your day or if they don't give you an emoji, then it crashes your day. We all do this. And I mean, I think it's really human. So I I don't think that's just all of addiction, but when it becomes, it's like eating at your gut where it's like, I had a client who the girlfriend didn't write back or something. It was like, Oh my God, I just can't live without her. And the intensity of that, this person's going to save you. Ultimately you're looking for, you're, you're trying to heal old um, childhood wounds that an adult can't do for you. It's like you get professional help, healthy relationships definitely soothe and um, are deeply healing. But to think a kind of a erratic emotional relationship or this person because she's perfect or he's perfect will never do it. Yeah. And there's a great book I highly recommend called Facing Love Addiction by, I think it's Pia Melody. She's a pretty um, well-known addiction specialist. She also wrote a book called Facing Codependency. But I think Facing Love Addiction is a really good resource um, for folks struggling that may be struggling with love addiction. Do you have any more like books that you love? I think anything with Brene Brown. I was just going to, I'm writing Daring Greatly as yeah, you're talking Brene about Brene Brown, anything around shame is really good. There's a book called, um, I think it's Self-Compassion by Kristen Neft, N-E-F-T. Uh, she has a TED Talk as well. Anything around self-compassion, um, I'm going to link all of these. Yeah. I'll, I'll send resources because I can't, because I can't think of off the top of my head. I one one of my goals is to have a TED talk. Me too. Oh, good. Yeah. Let's work on that. Yeah. Maybe okay. this will launch it. Hopefully. I mean, this is, this will launch something. Yeah. I'm just not sure what. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did we, is there anything else that you'd like to add or touch on in the spectrum Of addiction? Yeah, of what we talked about. So lastly, around addiction, get help. And that anything's possible in terms of recovery. So if you're struggling with stopping a behavior of substance, um, binging, whatever it is that uh, you need to get help, because that's really what's going to change. There's like a cliche saying, like, nothing changes if nothing changes. Mm. So someone taking action. So whether it's 12-step, in terms of 12-step, I recommend checking out five to six different meetings. So the way 12-step works is there's meetings, they're free, uh, people share, you hear stories. Usually people get sponsors and work the steps. Uh, the reason I say to go to different meetings is because it's like if you went to a yoga class and it was a really shitty teacher, you would you wouldn't lump it all in and go, well, yoga sucks. That was That's the fucking dumbest thing I've ever been to. It's just, it was a bad teacher. And so you try a different class. So, cause I have a lot of clients that will go to one or two meetings and not like it. And it's like, well, it might just not be your tribe. 
you know? So I highly recommend going to multiple meetings to see and seek people who are well, like that shine, that like when you're listening to people share, it's like, what do they have, Mm. right? There's, and just, I tell this to all clients who I'm introducing in 12-step as well, there's gonna be fucking crazy people and there's gonna be really well people and there's everything in between, just like anything in life. So it's like, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's like, see where you do relate. See if it could be one aspect of a tool that can help you um, on your path of recovery. And you don't have to be in it forever. It's just, you're trying to get new support. Um, Take what you want and, and leave the, the rest. rest. Where'd you hear that? That's so weird. I heard it in the uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Um Ashley, where can we find you? My website is ashleymillerwellness.com. Facebook, same thing. And I work out of San Francisco. Are you accepting new patients? I am. I have a couple spots open right now. Okay, cool. Um, do you have a parting word for our listeners? Or sorry, a parting thought. It could, it could be a word. I think your parting word is hope. Uh, do you have a parting thought for our listeners? That if you're unsatisfied with your life, anything is possible in terms of change and healing and recovery. It's just you seeking it. So if you feel that, um, this is a long thought, but if you feel that you're not fulfilled or you're not satisfied, like seek help, do something different. That like, I think we're here to thrive and live well. It's possible for anyone. There's no unique case in this world, in my opinion. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. <laughs> the Love Drive is produced by me, Sean Galanos, with the help of Guilford Street Studios. You can find more information about me or The Love Drive by going to thelovedrive.com. If you want to know more about what was talked about in this episode, then check out the links in the show notes on my website or your podcast app. I've included a phenomenal TED Talk by Brene Brown about dealing with shame along with some other resources that can help if you're struggling with problematic sexual behaviors in your life. If you like the show, then it would mean the world to me if you could tell a friend about the podcast. I work hard on the show and would love nothing more than for more people to enjoy it as well.